The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, you'll hear a new interview with Dr. Brad Thompson of Oncolytics Biotech. Trading as ONC on the TSX and ONCY on the OTCQX. Brad and I will discuss the probability that cancer will become an affliction of the past as we near a cure. You'll hear from Noblest Health trading in the U.S. as HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. I'll visit with the raving capitalist, Paul Blagenovic, and we'll catch up on commodities, markets, geopolitics, and more. We'll begin the program with a friend of the show, Paul Gill, president and CEO of Lamico Metals. Paul's company is involved with the ever-evolving world of green tech and rare earth metals, such as graphite, and the development of technology using graphene, which, like plastic was in its introduction decades ago, may in fact revolutionize the way that we live. Only now we've got an eye on sustaining the environment as we move through the 21st century. Let's go. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Paul Gill, CEO of Lamico Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as LMR, and in the U.S. on the OTC as LMRMF. Lamico Metals is focused on the exploration and development of minerals for the new green economy, such as graphite, and also has a 100% interest in Lomico Technologies Incorporated, an investor in graphene technology and manufacturer of electronic products. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Thanks for having me on. It's been a long time since we visited, at least on this radio program. There was certainly quite a buzz with regard to graphene and graphite when I covered this company about four or five years ago or so, before many of the related technologies were deployed. What has changed in that time frame? How's the market changed? And how have we gone from concept into production, more or less? That's exactly what we planned to do when we first made arrangements with Graphene Labs in 2013, and that's exactly exactly what we've done. We invested in Graphene 3D Lab back in 2013 pre-IPO and then helped them again with another investment during the IPO and that stock has done very well. It's recently signed a research and development agreement and royalty agreement with a Fortune 500 company. So Graphene is here to stay and we're looking forward to more and more activity. What are some of the across the board uses for Graphene and Graphite? At this time, we have such a varied amount of graphene patents out there. There's 12,000 that have been filed to date. What we look at for graphite is very stabilized types of uses. One is a battery. Graphite is used in batteries such as lithium-ion batteries, lubricants, etc. We think the electric vehicle applications are going to be getting bigger and bigger and wider and wider spread. The medical device 
device applications and hospitals, etc., are going to increase. Think of MRIs. Think of motorized wheelchairs. Think of golf carts as another application. So graphite has a long way to go, but the real sizzle here is about the graphene. Graphene is 200 times stronger than steel by weight. It is a thousand times more conductive than copper and it has the flexibility of rubber. So it's an amazing product and we can imagine where all these wonderful uses are going to take us. Really between graphite and graphene, we're really looking at pretty much everything. The only thing I can sort of equate it to, Ellis, is the advent and the introduction of plastic in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. So versatile, we haven't got a good idea of what to do with it yet. The general public hasn't got a good idea of what to do with it yet. The scientists and the large Fortune 500 companies are all over it. And so you know that once they've spent $5 billion in research, which has just happened a little while ago, filed 12,000 patents, and they've awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics for the isolation and discovery of graphene in 2010 to University of Manchester scientists, we know that this is coming. So it's up to us, the people who are at the cutting edge of investing, to really pay attention. And so what I've done is gone out there and made the initial investments. We would like to get more and more support for Lamico metals and Lamico technologies in order to continue our investment into graphene and graphite uses. We think the future is very, very bright for these two minerals. Well, you took a 10% stake in Graphene 3D and a 40% interest in a private company called Graphene Energy Storage Devices. Are you looking for, in addition to mining, which you're doing successfully, are you looking for more companies that you can uh, take a stake in down the road and that's where you potentially may seek investment in the future? Yes, absolutely. It's a bit of a transformation our company is going through. Our base concept is to discover minerals that are going to be used for the green economy. That's why we're after lithium, graphite, cobalt, other types of rare earths, etc. at the base case. Now we've really vertically integrated, so we're looking towards the applications of the processing of that graphite into graphene and the end uses of that particular product. That's where energy storage came from. We're working on a graphene supercapacitor with Stony Brook University in New York. That report should be out very shortly. The graphene 3D is working on and has a, a product for sale that will put graphene and all of its wonderful capabilities into a 3D printer uh, filament and be able to print out electronic objects that are 3D. That makes a great opportunity. So yeah, we're looking high and low for where we can get new graphene applications and people who have interesting patents and invest in them. I think it's a good spot to be. Where are you looking for potential acquisitions? Anywhere they might be on the planet, North America, Europe, Asia? Yeah, we've looked in Europe and South America, Asia. We're looking for opportunity. Opportunity means you have to be prepared for it. So we have to raise the cash in Lamico in order to be prepared for those opportunities. And that opportunity is someone who has an isolated patent, one that doesn't have a lot of overlap with it, because there is a lot of overlap in graphene patents right now. And secondly, one that has a huge market potential. So think about graphene and all its conductivity and creating an ink out of that graphene so you can print electronic circuits. That's a lot of interesting properties there. 
You can also create a paint using a combination of graphene and molybdenum and some other metals and that would coat the bottom of ships. Lockheed Martin has a graphene filter that it's working on to filter seawater to create fresh water. There is the U.S. Army patent on infrared contact lenses using graphene. So you can see the wide variety of patents here and the very interesting applications. So we think there's opportunity out there. We're on it. We need people to come and support us in our activity at Lameco, and we can, I think, really pave the future at this point. I want to ask you about how individuals or institutions or how folks can get involved, but there's one potential application I'm thinking of, and as I sit here in Southern California where the sun shines most every day of the year, and you mentioned graphene as a conductor and a paint, why wouldn't some sort of graphene paint or graphene in itself be coating all of these buildings here and conducting and storing energy in the future? Why wouldn't it do that? Absolutely. I'm sure that there's a patent. I think there is a patent on that particular end use using graphene as a paint. It's a good thermal conductor as well as electrical conductor. So heat is what solar panels are all about. You're creating heat and you're using that heat to uh, run an engine or heat water or some other application. So yeah, I think that there's a definite definite use for graphene in Southern California. You mentioned the company used vertical integration, and I want to get into that in your Kickstarter campaign. But let's talk about the bottom end of that vertical integration. That's the ground. What are you doing as far as mining the minerals concerned? Well, we've raised $5.5 million in 2014 and recently deployed it at the Lelutra project in Quebec. This project is located about 50 kilometers from the only operating graphite mine in North America, which is owned by Imaris Carbon and Graphite, formerly named Timcall. So we're a very close relative, I guess, geologically speaking, of this particular deposit. And we want to find something that will provide graphite for the next 20 or 30 years. Now, we're not adverse to selling the product and the project to Emirates if that opportunity comes up. But our first goal is to define the resource. And so that's what we're working on now. We've drilled about 130 holes into the deposit, discovered long intercepts of graphite that are crystalline flake graphite. And so we're watching carefully the prices of graphite, which are ranging between 1500 and 3500 per ton, depending on the carbon purity and the flake size. So if you look at something that's 94% carbon purity plus above 50 mesh in size, that is something that sells for 3,500 US a ton. Our costs, because it's close to surface, are going to be very low. So we think that we've got a really good opportunity to find a very robust resource that we can then sell to one of these big companies. What is your plan for securing funds to further develop your resource and to further develop the acquisitional aspect of your business plan? Yeah, absolutely an important question. That's one of the biggest questions facing companies like ours that are junior companies. We have a couple different opportunities. One, we've taken some of the funds that we've raised in 2014 and uh, deployed them into the licensing of uh, 
electronic products in order to establish a revenue stream. So we've licensed three products, two power converter products, which have an end user already defined and have about five or six million units of this particular device that are sold per year. We have an agreement with a distributor that has about 250,000 units ready to be bought. We're about to manufacture that particular product, so that'll establish a revenue stream. We have a second project, which is the focus of a Kickstarter campaign called the Spider Charger, which essentially is a device that replaces your normal outlet or your standard outlet. And what it does is it provides three ports on each side, including the two normal plugs. And it will be eight ports, thus the spider name, that can be plugged in and charge phones or iPads or any other electronic device. The reason for the USB ports is that it charges more efficiently using those ports. You only need to have one or two of these per house and you can charge all of your devices. So essentially, every home and every business should switch out their AC outlets and install a device like this. The market's huge. The market is absolutely huge, and we know the market is there because there's other groups that have similar products that have been on the market and been successful. There's one that has two USB plugs in the front, And the only downside to having the USB ports in the front is that if you were to plug in a phone charger with a um, power converter at the end of it, it blocks those USB ports. So that's the only disadvantage. And so we've solved that problem and we've come up with a unique design that we have a patent pending on and also a a trademark on Spider Charger. And so we're talking to distributors now and getting Underwriters Labs and Canadian Standards Association approvals. And the sole purpose of this is to get enough revenue and attract enough to then establish a profit from it. That defends our position when it comes to the graphite project and provides us some revenue in the interim because that's obviously a long-term project. It also allows us to um, be patient on selling or doing a transaction on the shares we received from Graphene 3D when we did the initial private placement. Those are worth about a million dollars right now. They have been worth as high as eight million just at the IPO stage and that company just recently closed a million dollars financing to get new products. So we think that if we're patient with this company, with the Fortune 500 company deal that they have, with the 8,000 customers they have, they're going to be a very, very big surprise to a lot of people in the future. And we want to continue to own that 10%. From what I've been hearing, your company sort of separates itself from the rest of the junior mining sector. I would consider your company a bit of a specialized tech metal company. How would you describe it? And how should you position the company to potential investors who maybe have been burned in the mining sector? Absolutely a, a good question. We are positioning ourselves as more than just a mining company. And the reason that we're doing that is because look at the disaster mining has become at this point in time. I think it's a real serious issue right now that we have many mining companies ready to go under with no other avenue to raise money other than to go to the market. We don't want to be caught in that situation. What we have done is created a revenue stream and a profit stream from these electronic products. We've got R&D going on in graphene and energy storage devices. We've got a robust 
robust situation that no one really knows about yet. From 10,000 feet, we look like any other mining company, but we're going to surprise people with the kind of activity that we have and we've already accomplished. The opportunities that are there for the future, we're positioning ourselves to be the funder for many other graphene transactions and high-end products made out of graphite. That's where the real market is. That's where the real profit is. So when you're looking for financing, which you need for your company, you described one instrument of finding financing that will protect your current shareholder base from potential further dilution. What are some of the other methods? Some of the other methods are actually, as we get our graphene products up and running, to license those products to other larger groups. That's essentially a very good role to play, is to be that mezzanine finance group that comes in and takes a product that is sitting on the shelf with an academic that doesn't want to take the risk of developing and commercializing it. We'll step in at that point if we feel there's an opportunity and provide that first half a million dollars that they need to develop that product and then go and find a end user for that product that will take it to the commercialization. So I think we're going to provide a very useful service. We have a lot of people that are now contacting us to request us participating in their companies. I think that's a great place to be when people are calling you and asking you to participate in groundbreaking research and you're getting known is a groundbreaking breaking company, you're in the right spot and people will notice. And that's the situation now. We're seeing some people getting out there and finding us, but we certainly need a lot more support and a lot more opportunity exists right now. Tell us about the Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, what we've done with the spider charger I described before, which is the wall unit that has eight ports and charges eight phones at a time with six with USB, two with normal outlets. We've actually gone on Kickstarter and started that campaign. We're about a week in and it's 2% funded already. The first 10% is the hardest, so we could certainly help that project out. And the funds are going to get the product UL and CSA certified and ready for distributors to use. That's the biggest obstacle right now for big companies to come in and get that product on the shelves. Big companies that sell to commercial construction companies, major electrical concerns, places like Home Depot. When I sit in LA and look at all the skyscrapers or a city like Vancouver, Toronto, New York, potential just for one or two large, large buildings to outfit all of them with these devices is just amazing. And it's probably a company changer. And your stock is at about three and a half to five cents, an amazing potential entrance opportunity. Tell us about the share structure. Right now, Lamico has 155 million shares out trading at three and a half cents to four cents in Canada and three cents in the US. We're not well known at this point. We haven't really started lighting up the charts at this point. So what we are looking at is delivery on our resource, the first few deals on our spider charger, the development of graphene 3D into a viable company. We're firing on all cylinders. I think we're going to break through in the next little while. And I think that's the opportunity for people who are interested in looking at companies that might change the way we do things. In the next little while, we hope to be able to go and talk to those guys that are building these skyscrapers and have sales for the electrical companies that install devices such as outlets in those new real estate developments. That's a good starting point. And then retrofitting, going to places like Home Depot is another one. So we think there's three excellent opportunities here with the graphene, with the electronic devices, 
and with the base metal graphite. So you're quite pleased with the way the business is forming itself since we first learned about Lumico, I believe, probably six or seven years ago. As Lumico, we've developed what we wanted to, which was a mineral asset from the graphite. We've gone forward from there and invested in companies we thought were going to change the world in graphene and seen them go IPO and continue to hold share positions in those companies. And now we've gone on to where there's a nice level of markup into the electronic products industry and hopefully will build a a nice base for us to display our graphene products in the future. That's really exciting. To be a hub for new graphene products would be an ultimate goal for us. Paul, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. It's great to visit with you again. I look forward to more updates on both Lomico Metals and Lomico Technologies in the future. Thanks, Ellis. I've been chatting with Paul Gill, CEO of Lomico Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as LMR and in the U.S. on the OTC as LMRMF. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brant Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. How closer are we to finding a cure for cancer than we were five years ago? The last five years have been the most exciting from a development perspective time for working in the cancer field. I think if you'd asked me that question five years ago, I would have said you know, 20 to 30 years. I think we are certainly within my generation of actually coming up with an effective group of therapies for most or all cancers. It's an amazing thing to be able to say that out loud. So we'll be able to say at some point in the future, cancer has been cured much like polio has been, correct? Exactly. I'm actually very comfortable saying that now. It's such a wonderful thing to be able to say out loud. It's just been such a change in the entire area and the perspective. And and it's almost like every day there's a new advance and a different cancer coming out. I think that's the trajectory we're on. I think we're going to be able to actually say that and not just hope for it. The cure for cancer in the future, I think we're not that far away from being able to say, at least to, to some patients or many patients, I think we can make it better. That's just really quite nice. Well, I know you've been through it when you hear the words from the physician. We've seen some evidence of possible cancer. If you've heard that from your doctor, it may not be the death blow that anybody's been experiencing in the past. Absolutely. I mean, there's some of the childhood leukemias when a generation ago or two generations ago were, you know, I mean, they were death sentences. And now we have 80, 85, 90% cure rate. I mean, it's a complete turnaround with some of these cancers. And we're just trying to, as an industry and as a medical community, trying to spread that to other cancers as well. And and we're trying to see some real major advances. I mean, melanoma is a good example. You know, when I got it, and that wasn't that long ago, it was a real concern. Everybody was really concerned. It wasn't just a few patients. And now it's a much bigger subset of patients that actually have a pretty good, oh, I'm never going to get this again prognosis if you get it early. It's just a complete change. 
and it's so nice. But we want to be able to do that with all cancers. We want to be able to say, well, okay, you got pancreatic cancer, not everybody in the office go, <gasps> no. That's where we'd like to be going. I mean, there's some cancers that are still extremely serious and have very poor prognosis. What kind of prevention can we undergo? So many times people are caught in stage three or stage four cancer and maybe too late. So uh, what are we not doing as a society to take care of early detection? Diagnosis can make the biggest difference. I mean, if you get a person at an earlier stage of cancer, the chances of them having a good outcome go up exponentially. It is such a difference. A lot of it is the spread of self-awareness. The internet is such a powerful tool for people to actually be able to say there's something wrong and have some content behind it. That's the first part. But I mean, a lot of the cancers, it's just the screening technologies have changed so dramatically in just the last few years. We're starting to get to the point now where we can actually just do urine tests and blood tests to really detect cancer quite early as opposed to having going in for scans and biopsies and all those sorts of things that prevent people from getting diagnosed early. I mean, people don't like to give you a low-dose radiation tracer and stick you in a scanner just to see maybe if you're sick or not. But to give somebody a cup and tell them to go into the bathroom for a urine sample, that's easy. And we're starting to get the test to do that. That is going to make more difference on than the therapies that I spend my time developing. Well, you spend a lot of time developing therapies. And in fact, uh, I might say that Oncolytics Biotech is sort of a one-stop shop for several types of cancer with regard to cure. And that's through your Reolysin Reovirus-based technology. Let's talk about that. Well, one of my colleagues actually said it in a way that I had never heard it said before. He has a very long depth of experience. He has many product approvals under his belt, as it were, in the cancer area. And he said that Reolysin reminds him very much from a developmental perspective of the old line chemotherapies. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, because it looks like it works on at least a percentage of everything. And, you know, it's like if, if you say cancer X or Y or Z, you'll look at me and go, well, yeah, we did a study and it looked like it worked on 5 or 10 or 20 or 40 or 50% of the patient. And that just reminded him very much of, of the way chemo's used to be. Not the side effect profile. I mean, our side effect profile is quite a lot better than that. You know, you do develop a therapy for breast cancer. You develop a therapy for pancreatic cancer. You're not developing a therapy for all cancers. And Reolysin is, I think, unique in that way is that it looks like it's working at least on a percentage of pretty much every cancer we treat. And it's, our job is to be to transform that finally in the end to getting it approved and getting it out so people can treat a lot of cancers. We've had a couple of really, I think, astounding discoveries in the last 18 months or so where it looks like real license actually works with this new class of drugs that everybody's talking about, which are called checkpoint inhibitors, which are responsible for some of the amazing changes that we've seen in responses in patients. And they work with the immune system. And real license looks like it's a universal potentiator for that entire drug class. It makes one of the drugs in that drug class work better, at least in animal models. So we're just about to start looking at that in patients, hopefully before the end of this year, but certainly by early next year in January, we should be treating patients with real license combined with a checkpoint inhibitor. And that's a major, major developmental step for us. It really does give you a different perspective, honestly, when you take a look at what you're doing every day when you come into work. Well, that's huge. I mean, once you've got FDA approval and once the clinical trials have been completed, how long will it be before real therapy becomes part of the vernacular like chemo is? It's 
a very rapid transformation when there's a new product approved and the uptake, particularly in the United States. I mean, the United States has the most advanced cancer therapy for patients in the world. And part of that is because there's such rapid uptake of new products. So, I mean, if I got a product approval from the FDA, say, on a Friday, your first sales would literally be hitting patients on the following Monday. The medical community in the United States is that good at uptake on new products when they're approved. It's not anywhere like that anywhere else in the world. You know, the American public has the real benefit of being in a healthcare system that adopts that quickly. So if we're talking, uh, you know, American doctors, that's one story. If we're talking the rest of the world doctors, it takes a bit longer. I mean, it can take, in Canada, for example, it can take a couple of years to actually get reimbursement in place. In the UK, it can take 18 months. In Germany, it can take two to three years. In the United States, it's three days. It's quite a benefit to being treated in the U.S. healthcare system, I have to say. I'm feeling that this is very positive news overall. This is a financial program, and as a potential investor in your company, the upside could be incredible with something of that nature. Could it not be? I would think so. I mean, the nice thing about biotech, put it a tiny plug for the entire industry, is that what drives valuation in our companies is typically clinical data in in humans, in people. It's really very much an on-off switch on valuation that's very much correlated with, you know, clinical outcomes. In 2016, we're expecting to report clinical data on four or five randomized clinical studies and, you know, where you've got patients on a test and a control arm and the control arm doesn't get your drug and the test arm they do. And you can compare that within this study. And that kind of data is are the valuation events that drive very rapid and hopefully very good changes in the valuation of a company like ours, and not just ours, other companies as well. It's one of the, the interesting, exciting things about investing in biotechnology companies is there's always this potential. You're not looking at 2 to 3 or 5% growth in a stock. When you show that your product works, you usually see very superior returns. And that's what makes it exciting to invest in the area. Radiation therapy and chemotherapy, while they may be effective in many cases, it's really, really, really hard on the body from what I've seen and from speaking with many cancer patients over the years. How does the realicin therapy uh, affect the body to your knowledge? Well, realicin has a very, I think, well understood side effect profile now from, and that's always something people need to focus on. I mean, people used to focus on acute toxicity, stuff that happened very quickly. And then they found that patients Patients that were being treated for one or two or three years all of a sudden started showing toxicity that's important. So it's important to actually categorize the toxicity of any new agent. Realicin has, I think, a, a very well understood side effect profile now. I mean, we've treated more than a thousand patients, and so you, the, the one in a thousand event is starting to occur. And for some very long duration, most long duration patient is, is about to start cycle 60. So 60 cycles of therapy that happen every three to four weeks. So you're talking coming up on four years now of month real license therapy and the side effect profile is very consistent. The patients on usually day two or day three of a five-day cycle get a low-grade fever. I mean a degree or degree and a half. They feel tired and that's pretty much it. I mean that's generally what they feel like. Uh, a small percentage get a little low-grade diarrhea and things like that. But there's no lasting effects. Once they come off, they're done. And the very interesting thing is, is that the longer you're on it, the less side effects you have. And so that patient that's about to start cycle 60 actually doesn't have any side effects anymore. You know, she comes in and she gets her stuff and she goes home and she's fine. It's like a trip to the store. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. And we watch for side effects actually more early than late, which is completely backwards to radiation and and chemotherapy, which have cumulative toxicities. So there's plenty of clinical trials going on throughout the year. And basically, you're waiting for results, aren't you? Absolutely. I mean, we're about to start a couple of new studies, which are kind of exciting. But we have active 
active studies ongoing now, I think, in seven different cancers, and that we should have data reporting on all next year. That's why we're in business, is to treat specific cancers and to be able to report on that to our shareholders, primarily. Everybody has instance of cancer, either in their family or circle of friends. You can't live this life and not be exposed to it in some capacity. How does one find out about the clinical trials related to Realison and Oncolytics Biotech in North America? Well, I mean, that's a great advantage, again, to being in the United States, is that the clinical trials that are conducted in the United States are all listed on a site called clintrials.gov. You can just go to that site and either search by disease. So if you have pancreatic cancer, you can just type in pancreatic cancer, and it will give you all the clinical trials that are being done in the United States on pancreatic cancer. So you can actually, as a patient or a doctor, look for how do you can get on those studies. And if you're interested in getting on a, you know, a specific study like real license, type in real license and hit the button, and it'll tell you all the different real license studies that are ongoing in the states that are active at this time. It's a great tool, and it is the only place in the world that has that tool. And what's that website again? It's CLIN, like C-L-I-N, trials, T-R-I-A-L-S, like all one word, .gov. And if people just Google clintrials.gov, and it'll take you straight to the website. Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining me on the program today. Well, thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Paul Lejanovic, the raving capitalist, certified planner, national speaker, and author of Stock Investing for Dummies, Micro-Entrepreneurship for Dummies, The Unofficial Guide to Picking Stocks, Precious Metals Investing for Dummies, and Zero Cost Marketing, which is available on ZeroCostMarketing.net. Paul, I understand you've got a new book out on Amazon.com. Why don't you tell our audience about it? It's one I'm very excited about because I think it'll be extremely valuable in today's economic and financial chaos and uncertainty. It's called Higher Level Investing for Dummies. I've done the book Stock Investing for Dummies. So in Higher Level Investing for Dummies, I get a chance to talk about ETFs and options and how to make money in bear markets and a lot more. I'm very excited about the project and it just recently got added to Barnes and Noble and Amazon I mean literally within weeks so it's a very new book out there you know what I find interesting right now is looking at the price of oil this morning it's about $35 a barrel and we've dramatically come down from our highs of over over $100 $125 just several years ago has that money trickled back into the economy it's been a big plus for consumers as you know I mean it hasn't been a horror show going to the you know to the gas pumps etc in recent months where the problem is going to be is potentially the after effect on a lot of portfolios, okay, both stocks and bonds. And the reasoning is, is that the energy boom that's happened both in America, etc., as you mentioned, has been out there. And a lot of those firms have been basically borrowing a lot of money because they were expecting the good times to keep on rolling. How often have we seen that? You start being over indebted because you think things are going to be doing very well. But as soon as the price of oil went down and revenues came down, you still have the debt to deal with. In many cases, people out there are getting harmed because the energy firms, the stock prices have come down. But in addition, there are a lot of portfolios out there, you know, many mutual funds and with a lot of retirees who have some of those bonds. And so those bonds are going to 
going to be problematic as well. Who knows how many of them are going to be heading into default? It's a, a great deal of problem from that level. So everything's sort of leveraged with regard to these bonds right now that are wrapped around energy. So we can see some sort of implosion that would it's going to affect investors and institutions. How does that trickle down to mom and pop? Well, first of all, a few things here. I actually had done a video right around the beginning of September because I hear a lot of talk about your market crash and recession. I believe that we've entered a period where it's like a death of a thousand cuts. People have seen, as you and I speak today, the Dow is down nearly 300 points. What I've been telling many of my clients and students is that because the levels are so high, in your own personal accounts, on some major positions you may have, especially after a nice run of recent years, that they should start considering putting on like some stop loss orders or trailing stops to help mitigate the downside, which is something that a lot of folks don't do and a lot of even financial advisors don't do. I had a chance to connect with some folks who are at a major brokerage firm, but when I asked them to help one of their clients put on trailing stops and stop loss orders, they pretty much says that they don't do things like that or that it's technically difficult to do. And I was mortified. In other words, there was a great deal of uh, you know bias toward the upside, but a lot of mom and pop shops and a lot of investors out there who've been building up their assets fairly well in the general stock market in recent years are now vulnerable to what could be a very difficult market. And it's going to start zigzagging downward. It's already happening. And part of the problem is, is that the greatest debt bubble in history on many levels is already starting to show cracks. This is my concern, and this is also part of the reason I'm glad to be on your program, directing some of this to your audience. Well, where can we direct some of our investment dollars if we see uh, gold and silver and energy assets continuing to decline and the stock market is at risk. Where's the safe haven? On a few levels here. For small investors, as I've always mentioned to them, if you're a long-term investor and you're looking at whatever your needs are, maybe retirement, and it's like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years from now, then the best place to be right now is that, look, there are some great exchange-traded funds where they have a portfolio of up to 50 stocks that are dividend growers. This is one of my favorite areas because I think what's more predictable than stock prices and how they fluctuate is dividends. There are some of my clients and students I was able to help them into ETFs where they raise their dividends year in and year out. So for those investors who have a long-term time perspective, they look at their portfolio and make sure they're only in stocks that are food, beverage, utilities, and the like that are paying dividends. Will some of these things go down? Yes, in the short term. But quality stocks are going to keep on zigzagging upwards, so I'm not that worried about those. I'm worried about too many people out there have the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Amazons and uh, a lot of tech stocks out there with grandiose technology but no earnings of any kind. You know, this is a time for them to review their entire portfolio and get out of the companies that are not making money. Secondly, they should be having really accumulating the cash in their accounts. Not because it's a great interest rate, but because there are going to be some buying opportunities with uh, some of these things. Like, keep in mind that when the market crashed in 2008 and 2009, the great stocks of the great companies went down with the bad stocks. But what rebounded on the other side? Bad stocks stayed down. Good stocks rebounded. But at the time, what you were able to do is this. Look, if you have a stock that's generating like a 3% dividend yield right now, and that stock, say, falls by, say, roughly, whatever, you know, 50%, I mean, I'm talking in extreme cases here, you might get a chance to lock in a safe dividend that could be 6, 7, 8% on the other side. Forgive me, some of my answers might be long, but your questions are very rich with <laughs> content potential, you know? Are there buying opportunities right now with regard to gold and silver? Absolutely. And uh, as you know, one of my other books, of all things, I've become a maven of dummies guides, but the one of them was 
precious metals investing for dummies. I talked him into that because I thought it was a very key and important topic. And I think that for a lot of folks out there, as you know, you have this very interesting divergence in the precious metals markets. Gold and silver, the physical, keeps on being strong and going up. Meanwhile, the paper versions of it in the COMEX, etc., show it not going up. The uh, gold and silver mining stocks have been struggling. I do think these are, I think, uh, historic buying opportunities without a doubt. When I see all the confluent, if the bottom is not in, it's pretty darn close. And I think the 2016 and 2017 hold strong potential for those. I've been accumulating physical silver recently. Is that one of the safe havens we can look at right now for investment? Yes. I say this in a way that I try to educate folks on, even financial advisors. Because as you know, there's many financial advisors who are not huge fans of gold and silver. But what they don't understand and what they're going to find out in the coming months is that Right now, you have an extreme example about counterparty risk. Right now, the junk bond markets are collapsing. And what is debt? When I mention counterparty risk, that sounds like almost like an arcane thing to folks. All it really means really is that if you have your money in a paper asset, the value of that paper asset is tied directly to the promise or performance of the counterparty. If you own stock, that stock is only as good as how well that company is performing. If they go out of business, your stock is worthless. The bond, if you have a bond and the counterparty, in other words, the folks that were lent the money. If they're not making good on the terms of the credit agreement or there's a collapse, chaos, bankruptcy, then that debt is going to go being worthless. Paper assets, the fact that they can go to zero, have been a true risk for years now. But the ugly head of the risk hasn't started showing up until right now. There's going to be eye-popping stuff happening with all this. I don't know what's happening behind the scenes on Wall Street, but don't be surprised if major big-name firms head into crisis. A lot of lesser names have been going into crisis, ranging from Glenn core, the junk bond funds, and so much more. And I think more of that is going to occur. So for the folks within the sound of our voice, every paper asset, including currency and savings, people forget part of the reason why you hold gold and silver is that it doesn't go to zero. But paper assets can, currencies can, bonds can. And now it becomes more evident to everybody, including the skeptics out there who don't understand the real reason behind gold and silver, because it has, again, its own intrinsic value. It doesn't go to zero like many paper assets can and are going through right now. We've seen that happen around the world, certainly, especially in in places like Venezuela, Argentina, Zimbabwe, even the pound right now is seeing some uh, downward pressure. The euro has not held the value it has a few years ago, but the dollar seems to have been very, very resilient. And at least on the surface, we haven't seen any signs of its vulnerability, although, as you stated, pretty much everything's in play. So why should anyone believe that we're at risk with regard to our own currency? Well, the dollar, as you know, it's the uh, best looking house on an ugly block, as you probably be heard often said. The thing is that being a reserve status currency gives it some privileges. There's trillions of dollars in play across the globe, and a lot of people see the United States as, in spite of all the bad things going on with our economy and terrorism and recession, that it's still a strong relative economy to everything else. So the U.S. dollar is considered strong from that perspective. But I think that is going to end up changing as well. Among the rumblings that have occurred recently is about China's currency heading into potentially reserve status, and that could happen. I think it was official that probably by September of 2016, you know, it could be considered a world reserve currency. And if that's the case, that's just more competition. In other words, the dollar has been strong because it had a special place for the longest time. If you're on the top deck of a ship that's been slowly sinking, a lot of the smaller currencies are going to get wiped out, ranging from currencies in the Ukraine to Venezuela and so many other ones. But at some point, if more and more currencies are on top, then the special advantages that the dollar has, has had, that's going to start to diminish. 
So you might start seeing the U.S. dollar heading into a bear market if it hasn't already, but certainly by by 2016, and that's going to coincide with the ascendancy or the next leg of the precious metals bull market after a excruciatingly painful bear market of the last four years. So the effects of the yuan being recognized as a bellwether currency have not taken place yet, and when everyone starts talking about it, we haven't really seen the effects of the yuan becoming a recognized reserve currency by the IMF yet. We haven't seen that happen. It hasn't fully started yet, but the wheels are already turning in that direction. So I think a lot of people, especially on Wall Street, you start seeing a slow move by people who never bought gold and silver before slowly start to buy it now. Because then they start to see what's happening on the wall. People forget that the most common collapse in world history is a currency collapse. Thousands of those have occurred. Whenever a government sees that it can print up a currency, it's almost like making like money out of thin air. We call it money, but it's it's a currency. It's, it's a unit of exchange. But when you start to overprint them, you start having dramatic effects. Many people thought for sure that inflation would come. I was certainly one of them. When it was going to start, I don't know. Because for a currency to start generating inflation, which means what? You print up so many units of it, and it's chasing the finite basket of the goods and services, that there's going to be inflation. You've had all these dollars, the trillions being printed up heading into the stock market. So all it really did was inflate the stock market. Now what? So many currencies being produced across the globe to try to mitigate all the financial difficulties, they forget that that doesn't create soundness. It just creates weakness in the currencies and it shows up in inflation in those places. Venezuela, they're having inflation because the money they're printing up doesn't go into any assets because those have been pretty much decimated. So the money goes into products and services. So it does culminate there. Inflation happens not only by how many dollars or units of currency you produce, but also where are those dollars heading. Don't be surprised if the United States, like 3, 6, 9, 12 months from now or 18 months from now, they start talking about issuing money from the central bank to the residents in the United States. That's already been talked in some parts of Europe. In other words, they try to help them mitigate it. But if you flood it there, the citizens will think it's a nice windfall. But all that's going to mean is going to be that the inflation is going to come to the consumer level, and that's going to be problematic. And that'll be, again, another boost to find finite assets such as gold, silver, and other hard assets. So we could see something pretty revolutionary as far as prices are concerned for precious metals and resource stock. Let's say I'm going to throw this number out 2017. I throw out numbers like that myself. You and I might be off six months either way, but the point is I think that this overproduction sooner or later is going to hit the consumer levels. I'd rather be a year too early than a day too late when it comes to my planning and making sure I have inflation hedges that are out there. Right now, gold and silver, I told you they're a hedge against counterparty risk, which they've been for thousands of years. But in terms of geopolitical chaos and monetary crises, what other places can you turn to except for making sure you have a lot of other hard assets, whether it's a, that hard asset is real estate or collectibles or cans of soup you know, in the basement? All of these things are going to be mattering more because they're going to appreciate in terms of all the unlimited units of currency they're producing. Hard assets and supplies and things, those are going to become very valuable in the coming years. Let's talk about the bear in the room, the Russian bear. Are we headed towards World War Three? We're going to have brushes there, without a doubt. I think that, see, the thing is this, if you're a world power and you act with some confidence and you back that up like America used to do, then people back off. That is actually even a way to mitigate or to avoid military conflicts. If people know that 
you're resolute in what you're going to do and you have the firepower, both economic and military, to back it up, that is actually something that helps to avoid conflicts. But when the world sees us as being very weak, tenuous speeches, all bark but no bite, and we're watching that we have either failed or questionable enterprises going bad, like why we didn't wipe out ISIS in recent years, I don't know. But when people see these kind of things on and on, what they say is, well, the United States is a paper tiger. Weakness doesn't project an air of diplomacy to the world. It invites conflict. Russia is getting more aggressive in many respects. Right now, they're having skirmishes with Turkey. Turkey is, of course, a NATO member. I doubt if the United States is going to be directly involved in a conflict during the next 3, 6, 9, 12 months, but we're inviting conflict in our direction. That same year you mentioned could easily be a brush-up where the United States could be putting a military in play against the interests of a Russia and a China, and I think this is a very problematic thing unless uh, we are able to then project to the world that we're stronger and that Hey, don't screw with us, basically. What's coming up in the future, and how can I join you? One of my biggest projects, I think, for 2016, and I'm so grateful you mentioned it, is that, first of all, you know, I label myself the raving capitalist, etc. Among the things I tell people to do is that, you know, the two-pronged approach to wealth building. Prong number one is having your money work for you, like passive wealth building. You mentioned gold and silver. I mentioned dividend-paying stocks tied to human need, having your money work for you. Some of my clients actually have been speculators, and they've been buying inverse ETFs and buying put options on some of the very things. So they've been making money in this. So there's lots of ways that people can be able to make money. I'm going to be doing programs during the first half of 2016 about how people can make money with all of these things based on what I shared in the book. But I said the first prong was passive wealth building. But the second prong is active wealth building. I think everybody within the sound of my voice should start a part-time home business. I consider that part of a diversification. Whenever your financial advisors talk, they always talk about being diversified among their assets, cash, stocks, bonds, metals, real estate, and that's fine. But among the risks in today's economy is that not enough people are diversified with their active wealth building portfolio. What does that mean? Well, the most common thing that people do, well, what do they do to make money actively? They have a job, right? You know, some of them out there had a full-time job, now they have a part-time job because there's lots of problems going on with small businesses because of Obamacare and half a dozen other issues. And for me, my second specialty over the last 25 years or quarter century has been helping people launch a home-based business. People forget, you know, like Ellis, as an example, do you know when you have your own home-based business, you can have your own 401k plan? I didn't know no, that. A lot of people don't know that. In other words, you can be able to invest and be able to build it up through your own home-based business. Like, for example, a home-based business, you know you can legitimately be able to write off literally thousands of dollars in expenses from home, being able to turn personal expenses into home office expenses, which could save you thousands in terms of, of taxes. Also, with a home-based business, you can have your own health savings account. Like, for example, most people know you can have an IRA, like a traditional IRA where you could put in, like, whatever, four, five, six thousand $6,000. But when you have a home-based business, you can be able to, based on the limitations as a percentage of your home business income, but you can be able to set aside up to $53,000 in your own self-employed IRA, which is a different animal altogether. So, Things like this add for the common person out there a new dimension of wealth building that they didn't have before. So in spite of it being a recession in the bear market, for me, helping people generate active income is important because, look, you've seen some of the same statistics I have, Ellis. Millions are unemployed. Millions are underemployed. Millions are worried about their retirement. Millions are worried about losing their jobs. A lot of the programs I'm going to be launching in January, February, March is like, imagine doing business where you're going to generate passive income. The money's going to come in, regardless of whether you have investments or not. So the more they're self-sufficient, the better off they're going to be. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Merry Christmas to you and everybody else. you got to continue your 
great works, Ellis, because I love your program. I've been speaking with the raving capitalist, Paul Majenovic. His website is ravingcapitalist.com. Subscribe free to the Prosperity Alert and get free wealth-building reports. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. Do you have questions that need answers about our sponsor companies? Contact them. Find the logos of all our sponsors on the homepage of our website. Click on them and learn more about our client companies. EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for an interview with Michael Nelson, the Vice President of Operations for Nobilis Health Corp, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NHC.TO. Nobilis Health strategically partners with physicians in the development and management of ambulatory surgical centers, or ASC, with the mission of providing superior medical care, increased patient satisfaction, and lower cost for health care delivery. Michael, give us a snapshot of your background, if you don't mind. A little bit of a traditional health Healthcare operation. Got a degree in operational management TCU up in Fort Worth. I came to grad school to Houston. I got an MBA and MHA focused in healthcare administration. Did a fellowship in the medical center at Harris Health. Had a chance to kind of see big, huge, multi-billion-dollar health system. And from a ground-up standpoint, at individual facilities, ran group practices, interventional cardiology practices for a little bit. I guess this past year, moved over to Nobles and have oversight for our operations and oversight for our facilities across our markets. It seems like you have a fairly broad scope of responsibilities. With alone just your experience in the construction of medical facilities, your presence is integral in Nobilis' future expansion aspirations. Actually, it's kind of nice to have a little bit of background here and there all over the place. We just started at 501A. That is a not-for-profit healthcare organization focused on physicians. A lot of the large major health systems have moved that model, becoming more of an integrated health system, allowing us to actually employ physicians, bringing them into that model. Group practice background is definitely helpful. That's going to allow us to kind of expand and, and have another option for a lot of our physicians and surgeons out there. Construction-wise, I had a chance to be part of about a $350 million capital construction program at previous health system at Harris Health. I had a little bit of construction, actually started how since I was very young, uh, kind of construction industry came from that background with family and actually where I get interested in healthcare. When you go into a hospital with a general contractor and just kind of see how it's set up, if you can figure out how to run one of these things, you can kind of do anything. It is one of the most wonderful places to be. We're the highest cognitive industry and everyone has their place to go, knows what to do. We provide excellent, excellent patient care. So having a look at that background is pretty important from patient flow standpoint, looking at growth opportunities, which we have been pretty significant here in the last year since I've been there. Went from about a $31 million revenue to about 83 this past year, 2014, and we're projecting about 147% increase this year to around $205 million of revenue. So rapid, rapid growth and need a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds to help move that forward. Can we look forward to seeing more neighborhood-oriented ASCs? We are really becoming more of an integrated health system. We have focused on looking for hospital opportunities. We do have the ASCs that serve our different markets. With the integration of our APHIS group, which we just acquired, gives us a little more visibility into about seven states now where we have relationships and or owner-operate facilities. And then we are focusing on a lot of ancillaries. Historically, we've been focused strictly on outpatient centers and outpatient surgery. Now we have an opportunity and through our direct consumer program, marketing program, patients always have a place to go now, especially in Houston where we just had interest in the hospital in Bel Air. That patient that may have back pain can come in and see our pain doctor, but it's a place that they need to have inpatient surgery or inpatient care. We have a place for them to go now. That's really the focus. We are looking to expand our market. We are looking to expand types of services that we provide. And again, becoming that a little more of that integrated health system focus on ancillary services. Past year, we've got an arrangement where we have urgent care centers and MRI centers 
up in the Willowbrook area that help integrate with our health system. We want to have a place to call home for our patients. What I've learned from interviewing your management team is that marketing is a strategic component of your growth strategy at Nobilis. It really is a phenomenal support. That is truly our solid competitive advantage in our market. With ACES acquisition, with Chris Lloyd and team coming on board, it's taken our programs to a new level. It's reduced our cost per acquisition for patients, and it's allowed us to reach a huge population. We've got a significant percentage of those patients that are coming into our facilities from out of state. And so we're able to really kind of get national with this program. From an operations standpoint, it's great support because a lot of our doctors that may not have huge volumes, we can definitely help source some of those patients into our health system. It's great for our programs to help keep volume in, and we're able to reach out to that patient directly. And again, like I said, going out to 11 different markets in seven states now, it's been a huge, huge opportunity for growth for us, and it allows us to focus on a lot of those high-margin cases and a lot of the high-margin population to bring it to our system that would help the growth opportunity. So certainly great program, great for the community, great for our markets, and great for the health systems overall. And like I said, I think that's really what sets us apart from the other health systems out there. We've got a world-class marketing company, a world-class marketing team that can reach out and identify a lot of the needs in the community. I've been speaking with Michael Nelson, Vice President of Operations for Noblest Health, trading on the TSX under the symbol NHC.to. That's NHC.to. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.